0: Welcome to the Bike Roomer Podcast, where we spin off from our usual tech coverage to pick the brains of the people behind the brands. If you want to hear how bikes and components go from ideas to the things we ride, this is the cycling podcast you've been waiting for. Please welcome your hosts, Tyler and Watts.
1: So Watts, I think this is our best interview ever. Yeah, it's pretty damn good. Yeah. I'll admit. And granted we're only, you know, eleven episodes in right now. But, you know, the other ten I think have been pretty interesting, pretty good. Covered a little wide range of topics. But this one is just it's so much fun and there's there's so much more personality to it, I think, because of the people. And you know, the people that were in it were a little bit of a surprise to me.
2: I'd never heard of Hans Heim before. How about you? I admit I I didn't know Hans, and which is disappointing to, to think of. I should know this stuff. Right. Um but I think As you had mentioned another time, like, I think he kind of keeps it that way.
1: Yeah, it seems like it's sort of by design. He's been behind the scenes on so much, and I don't want to give any of it away because this interview really, like, he talks about, it's just, I think it's going to blow people's minds, all the brands and the products and the, the, like, standards and things that he's been behind, but it's totally behind the scenes. So the names that he and the brands that he mentions, you're going to be like, oh, wow, I had no idea this other guy was sitting there working with him this whole time. And that's one of the
2: reasons I think this interview is actually one of the more one of the better because it delves into stuff that is actually fascinating to me which is the people behind the history of mountain biking more so than widgets. Oh, although know, we talk about widgets and the evolution of that,
1: but we do a little bit, which is, you know, why I wanted to do this podcast because we cover so many of the widgets on the site with the, you know, the videos and the the words and the photos. This is kind of a chance and this one, you know, what was really fun about this too is we were at Ibis for the launch of the new Ripley 4. I talked to Scott, or Scott Nickel, the founder of Ibis, earlier in the day. I was like, hey, you know, I'd love to interview you. And then, of course, after a three-and-a-half-hour ride and a bunch of pizza and maybe a beer, um, I was, like, tired. We still had, like, a two-hour drive ahead of us. And they're like, no, no. And one of the other people, uh, Cerise, who used to write for us, she's like, oh, oh yeah. have you met Hans? You know, and I was like, Hans who? And so she told me just enough. And I was like, okay, that's it let's go find a room we're doing this interview right now and i'm so glad we did it's a little bit long it's our longest one yet too so let's just go ahead and jump into that and then we'll talk a little bit about it after great hey scott and hans thanks for coming on the bike roomer show happy to be here yeah stoked so we just finished a an I'm using air quotes here. Hour and a half ride that was about three to three and a half hours. Right, (laughs) typical meteorite. (laughs) Yeah, typical meteorite. And we didn't even like stop for proper photo shoots. But it was pretty awesome. And on a new bike, new version of the Ripley. Ripley. And so that bike has actually been in line for longer than I thought. But I guess it must have taken a little bit of a hiatus from that first version with the like a soft tail until the modern. Incarnation of right, the yeah. Based. There's
0: so uh, there's been two ibises effectively V1 and V2, and uh, V1 was uh, based up in Sonoma County the whole time from 1981 till 2000, and then V2 uh, is uh, where the the second generation Ripley came in, and that was basically 2002 uh, on, uh, although nothing came to market until 2005, but. Um, that that's that's a different story (laughs) but uh anyway the yeah ripley number one was a soft tail aluminum bike and it followed the uh the silk tie which is a soft tail titanium bike and so that was that was when we were playing with shorter travel back then and building with metal and the new ripley is uh, like every single bike that we sell is carbon fiber right
1: so that tends to jump across a lot of stuff but let's go to the beginning. How did you start Ibis? Why did you start Ibis? You were quite the young fellow at the time. Yeah, 26. And to He's, put that into frame, you guys are celebrating year 38. Yep, of yeah, IBIS. that's well, last awesome. Week,
0: yeah, April Fool's Day is our <laughs> traditional, <laughs> traditional day to you know celebrate that. And I hung my shingle up sometime in April of '81, so I just decided to call it the first. And uh, yeah, the so the what happened was basically. I was living up in Mendocino, and uh, I was uh, Mendocino, California, up in the redwoods, and I was converting these old Schwinn uh, clunkers into multi-geared bikes, which a number of people were doing around the country at that time. This is like nineteen seventy nine, and a few people were doing it. They were doing it in Marin, and they were doing it in Colorado, and a few other places down in LA, uh, Cupertino, and I got wind of these guys that were. We were also doing it in Marin and they were heading out to Crested Butte. And uh, this was one fall, I read an article in Coevolution Quarterly that Charlie Kelly wrote and uh, turned me on to these guys. And I called them and I said, Hey, I want to drive out to Crested Butte with you guys. And they said, Do you have a car? And I, I didn't, but I lied and I said, Yeah, I got a car. And uh, <laughs> so they said, Okay, you're in. And so I borrowed a, a, a car from a friend of my dad and a big Plymouth wagon. And I showed up in uh, Fairfax and met uh, Joe Brees, uh, Gary Fisher, Charlie Kelly, Charlie Cunningham. All those guys were there, and we all caravanned out and met Steve Potts out there later, and Tom Ritchie, and a whole wow. bunch of other, the old names. You know, like, it was, like, pretty core group right at the beginning. I hope there's a picture and, of that um, somewhere. There's the, Yeah, Wendy Craig was really good about documenting that stuff, so there are definitely a bunch of photos awesome. of that. But But anyway... I was riding a, uh, I think a Cook Brothers cruiser that I had converted into gears at that point, and uh, and we went out there and I was um, I'd been practicing uh, like kind of doing wheelies and trick riding all my through you know through my early early years my childhood years I started riding when I was five years old and I just loved bike riding so I was a good bike handler and I was riding a lot so I was fit and I rode with those guys and. They were kind of the cool guys, right? The Marin crowd. I mean, they're like, you know, like, don't really know who you are. In fact, you know, they're like, okay, if you got a car, you can go with us. And then when we started driving out to Colorado, um, we, we were putting the caravans together of who's riding with whom. And Charlie Cunningham showed up and he had this crazy aluminum bike with drop bars, big down coat with duct tape all over <laughs> it, kind of one eye going that way and one eye going that way and big frizzy hair. And Gary Fisher's like you ride with him, and so I spent the next twenty four hours with Charlie Cunningham and fostered a lifelong relationship. But you know, based on that amazing, amazing road trip, and um, so that that was that was you know a mil- million little anecdotes about this about this trip. But the thing that sort of got me in with those guys was I could ride wheelies, I could do trialsy moves over logs and stuff, and none of those guys. Could do that. They were like roadies, you know, that then were living on Mount Tam, and they're, so they're bombing down Mount Tam. And so I got accepted into their group, and I, I say that because it's like it's super critical to the fact that okay, they said this guy's okay, we'll hang, let you hang out with us, and then <laughs> I uh, I ended up uh, being very intrigued by what they were doing. Joe Breeze had just built the first ten bikes that he had, you know, in his in his career. Charlie built a, a couple. And uh, I had asked both Joe and Charlie if I could apprentice with them and learn how to build frames. And that, that winter, that's what I did. I moved in with Steve Potts up on Mount Tam and uh, over on, in Mill Valley is where Joe lived and in Fairfax is where Charlie lived. So I just commuted back and forth over Tam various days and got a really different um, education from each of those guys because they, they both approached things very, very differently. And um, then I built a frame uh, that next year in 81. So this this all happened in 1980. This trip to Colorado, and um, so I built frame, and somebody said, "Hey, would you build me one?" And then it just took off from there. And so that then you can fast forward. You know, we just grew <clears throat> s- slowly and steadily as a company for the next next 20 years. That's awesome.
1: And then Hans, how did you come into the picture?
3: Well, I had uh, always been in the bike business from my first job, basically, and uh, I tried a uh, couple of other jobs Like that lasted about a day. <laughs> I like, no, I can't do this, and back into the bike business. And uh, so, yeah, in high school, I worked at a shop uh, putting bikes together, and then uh, um, my first like real job was at Specialized, and uh, Mike Sr. was talking, uh, doing the sales call, on the phone uh, to a friend of mine who had a bike shop or was a manager of a shop and he said, do you know anybody who's looking for a job? And he gave him my number and so Mike Senior called uh, you know, my house and uh, said, uh, do you know anything about bikes? And uh, <laughs> I, I said, well, I've got an a MKM six day race frame that I've converted to ride on the road. And he's like, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then I just started working in the warehouse and the first job I had was just um, the very bottom rung of you know sweeping the floors and uh then you, it was early on right it, yeah we had 12 people yeah wow. and uh, so uh pulling orders and then graduated to you know shipping and uh i um, uh, got into uh, uh sales and each each job um uh, i'd go about two months and i just I'd go in and tell Mike, you know, I can't really do this much longer. I'm going to explode you. Like, what else you got? And so I'd do the next thing and the next. And I eventually ended up uh, <clears throat> being in sales, which was um, way more entertaining for me. It just kept, I could, I could stay psyched about that for an extended period of time. And uh, so they hired a guy who was a con artist to be my boss. And I had to train him, and he didn't know anything but he was really screwing up and I I quit. And I told uh, the guys that specialized, I told them, you know, when he's gone, call me, I'll come back. (laughs) And so um, I worked at a bike shop for a year and that was uh, Shaw's uh, Lightweight Cycles and that was a pro shop and um, I learned a lot there as well. Um, And then about a year later, I got a call. uh, Yeah, um, that sales manager guy, he's gone. Uh, Do you want to come back? I'm like, yeah. (laughs) So I came back, and so I worked at Specialized twice. And the second time I was a sales manager um, uh, for, uh, had uh, 11 reps in 37 states. And so I'd go visit shops and talk to the reps and uh, write the program and all that kind of stuff. But I was, uh, at that time, still only like 26 or 27. And uh, so I was a little bit precocious. and then I always wanted to have my own business, and I uh, quit at um, Specialized to go try to do that. And uh, it, uh, I decided before I invested not to do it <laughs> because it seemed like it wasn't. There was no way you could pull it off, and what it, it seemed too hard. And that was uh, with a clothing company called Vigorelli. So I uh, I got a, a another job back in the bike industry and uh, worked as a I worked for uh there's too many places to remember all at once really. But uh Veltec Boyer and Miata and um then I was at Miata and I was racing and I raced throughout uh all that time too. Just road racing and time trials and stuff. And some mountain bike racing, um which I always managed to scare the crap out of myself. But I did all right. <laughs> that means you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh so I was uh Uh, talking to Keith Bontrager and he was helping me with a bike that he was basically making parts for me and uh, I was like, God, this guy's really smart and he's he's uh, doing some really cool stuff But he seemed like he had very little self promotional side to him. So I'm like, this is all going to be a secret unless somebody you know does something with it and uh, so I had a little bit of money saved up and I said, hey, do you do you want to get together and take Bontrager Cycles larger because at that time he had uh, a um, you know maybe a 1500 square foot or 1000 square foot shop and uh, a couple two three guys helping him and he was it, he had some um, successful products but it was all real small scale and I was like man this guy should be world famous and, and have a substantial business and uh, so he agreed and we partnered and so I put uh, uh, my savings into it, and uh, I was half owner of Bontrager Cycles, and so we took that from um, those beginnings to uh, you know thirty employees and uh, a couple thousand frames per year, and then we developed this sort of like uh, the system where we take one of his ideas, and I would go out and I'd find uh, a vendor or a company that uh, made that product already. And then they would do a Bontrager version of that product. So like Selle Italia for saddles, and uh, just for an example, or Weinman for rims. And and so that model uh, worked really well because Keith would, he had just ideas. He's like an idea hamster. He's just coming up with them every day. (laughs) And so then I would go out and i go, okay. Um, One of the best was uh, we had done a saddle with uh, sell it at Italia, and it was pretty cool. It had, you know, straight sides, and you could get off the back real easily because there weren't dropper posts commonly at that point. And then we got knocked off by Velo, and they just copied it and started selling it. And somebody we knew said, hey, uh, Velo made – it looked exactly the same. And so I was at the trade show, and I went to Velo, and I said, you can't do that. How about we sell it under the Bontrager name, and you give us 10%, And free tooling, because you already did it anyway. And they agreed. And so then it got to be OEM on everything. And checks started coming in the mail. And and we could make payroll, which was awesome. (laughs) You know, we got all these guys working. And you don't make a huge amount of money on the frames and stuff. But we started getting more money from licensing and all these other products. And the coolest thing was each company that did it also would advertise the name. So I have... One copy of uh, like mountain bike action or something from way back then that has like eight different Bontrager ads in it from all the different company uh, companies that were doing it, plus a review on a product. It was like we just kind of went off, and it was really really cool. But um, you know things don't sit still, and we're making steel hardtails, and aluminum was starting to, to really come on, and uh, so you know that Klein uh, really growing and going. And then full suspension started coming in, and we were sort of, uh, I'd say, kind of locked in time uh, for the development of the bike, and we were steel hardtails. And Keith, <clears throat> these days, is really, um, he's really nice and easygoing, fun to talk to. Back then, he was gnarly. He was really difficult. And he will admit it. He's like, yes, I've been to charm school. <clears throat> but back then, it was, it was really difficult. And so we would get in these battles, and I was just like, we need to do aluminum, and we need to do full suspension. And he's like, you know, we just got the, the steel working nicely, the, the production line. So it was just, it seemed unconscionable to just reconfigure everything and uh, redesign. Plus, full suspension, you got to design a full suspension frame. And there's so many different ways you could do it. And I think he was, he was very conscious of wanting to do something that was highly regarded because of his re- reputation. And it's not easy, you, you know, you've got to make a bunch of uh, prototypes and test them and, and come up with something that's worthy of, yes, this is a Bontrager full suspension bike. And so it was just kind of lagging and lagging. And uh, uh, he was frustrated because I was bugging him constantly, like, no, this is imperative. If we, I, I felt and I do read the market decently or back then I felt like could anyway uh, I felt like if we didn't do it we weren't going to be selling what we were selling now It was going to change and so we I think disagreed on that So we split and um, I went across the parking lot and started up with Santa Cruz bicycles And I was still half owner of Bondrager <laughs> I hope that uh, worked Got out well for you in. when Trek bought them <laughs> It paid for my house Nice. And so way back then I got some money from Trek and it's been great. So like I built this house out in Aptos and it was awesome. It was a dream come true. And, uh, uh, I didn't blow the money on anything. I managed to basically hang on to that value, you know? And then, uh, Santa Cruz, we started from, uh, I was, uh, I went over to the Santa Cruz guys when they had a prototype, um, and they had, uh, no production just yet. Um, and so I wasn't prototype of a bike uh, like they uh, hadn't the Tasmid, done anything the first full suspension okay. bike yeah they had no sales yet but they had prototypes and it was a really cool bike and uh, they'd been asking me for a long time hey why don't you come do this because they knew I had helped uh, with Trager, and they knew I had some of the skills that um, would come in handy to start this company up so uh, just by practicing it already so we started up Santa Cruz and we got going but the very first thing I had to do was a uh, find a new source for the bike. <laughs> it was way too expensive. No one was going to buy it uh, back then. It was going to be uh $1800 for a Tasman and just a frame. And uh we got that down to like uh 1200. Uh so what year was this? Uh that would have been 94, okay. And so first thing is like resource it, uh, get it requoted, get it, you know, we made about uh 50 or so <laughs> uh you know, the, with the, uh, maybe maybe a couple hundred with the first uh, guys. But um, anyway, it, it went and went, and uh, the Tasman had some built-in uh, difficulties, and so the next bike was the Heckler, and so my goal with that, I was a product product manager for the bikes going forward on, on that, like the Heckler and the Superlight and uh, any, any of the shorter travel bikes, and then Rob uh, was into the downhill, and so he would kind of manage the um, Downhill bikes and the longer travel stuff, um, so I was there for ten years and I was the CEO and forty five percent shareholder, and then uh, after ten years, uh, we had uh, introduced the Blur and it went off and it was a huge uh, bunch of growth for the company and, um, but you know as you grow it gets uh, really hectic it's it difficult and especially like for me I had never had a twenty million dollar company before and so you're always learning right, right. and so. Uh, And I I didn't even go to college, so I'm really learning everything. I don't have, like, oh, yeah, I remember back in class. This is what they said. So um, I think Rob was maybe frustrated or whatever. I think things were going really well, generally. But um, it's hard, you know. You're, like, tripling in a year at times. Wow. Um, But definitely 30 40% growth per year, even when the numbers got bigger. And so you're always running out of space getting a new location, moving, adding stuff, adding people. Then there's always, you know, you've got all these people and you're trying to get them to work well together and all, the, all those issues, you know. Right. So it's just constant and I, now I know that that's completely normal Terrible. and some people are better at it than others. Some people can tolerate it more than others. But um, anyway, uh, our relationship blew up and he worked with um, the 10% shareholder who is the owner of Santa Cruz Skateboards and Snowboards and uh, Together, they had majority uh, shares, and they just said, why don't you just leave? <laughs> what? Why? They never really said anything. I'm like, okay, sure, uh, buy me out. I know we're not going to buy you out. Just go, well, okay, well, as long as I uh, get paid to, you know, my share of the profits, and they're like, no, we're not going to do that either. And it was just got really ugly really fast, and it was a shame, because we had been good partners and worked really well together for a long time, so it was a really big disappointment and uh, I had to, uh, you know, play the part of the person who uh, isn't gonna get screwed over and I got an attorney and and uh, worked on him until I got bought out. And uh, it was uh, a lot of money, uh, but it was a tenth of what I had gotten a uh, independent study of the business. Right. Uh, they said it was going to be this amount and those guys are like uh, literally threw the report across the room and said no this is what we'll pay you and uh, I was like well that's still a lot of money so (laughs) okay and I split and uh, but like I love this industry I love bikes I love uh, product management um, and uh, trying to come up with innovations and So I really was like, okay, that was just a bunch of bullshit. Now, what's next? And I was like, I really want to make this, I have this idea in my mind. I wanted to make a carbon version of the blur that was more freeform instead of being like stick figure kind of bike. And um, uh, one of the uh, guy's girlfriends was a really good um, industrial designer. And I had seen her portfolio Man, stuff is beautiful. Everything she did, it could be uh, uh, plates or a printer case or whatever, it was just gorgeous. And I was like, you know how sometimes you resonate with somebody's design? You're like, wow, everything that designer does, I just like it, you know? Right. And so I got back in touch with her. Is that Roxy? Yeah, so that's Roxy's Roxy. been
1: the designer for i just since. She's,
3: when. The, she's the reason I wanted to do this, is because right. I could see that. Um, Bikes at that point were mostly straight lines. And I could see that it would be shocking and really fun for everybody if we did something that's like one of those uh, design studies but we really made it. And so, uh, and she didn't know about bikes. So uh, it was really like, what's a down tube? What's a top tube? She really didn't know about bikes, which was actually really cool. She had no preconceived notions. But I had to like do a lot of a lot of feedback. Like, no, we can't put something there because there's going to be uh, a shock there, or a water bottle, or whatever. You know, or a so, triple, uh, yeah, tri- a triple crank I set so. front <laughs> derailleur and all that. <laughs> right, right, right. So it's a combination of on one side this this highly idealistic vision of making something really beautiful, this full suspension carbon monocoque bike, right? And on the other side, you've got reality of drivetrains and brakes and and everything that has to and the stiffness and the strength and all the engineering considerations and so bringing those two things together and making them get along was um, a big project and then doing the the freeform uh, shapes on the computers and software at that time was really challenging it took uh, I think we it's like a fish story. It always gets a little bit more, but like yeah. 1,800 hours of CAD time. Right.
1: Well, that was and when computers had like you know, 128 megabytes of RAM, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah.
3: No joke, at one point I was so frustrated. I was like, I will buy you guys a new computer with just max out the RAM and the 256 CPU. megabytes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, because it was like $145 an hour. And I'm like, regen. Regen, like, oh, yeah, yeah. no, yeah. we can't do it this way. But they they were shamed into buying a new computer. Right. And but those guys were actually really cool, and they they're part of what made it possible. Um, but that's that's, and that's what led you to Scott, uh, right? Yeah. Well, how does that play into? The oh 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 yeah. Actually actually the the thing that I knew is I needed a company to do this with, and I always loved Ibis, and I loved this this sense of humor and the uh, um, quality. Um, and it occupied a unique spot in the industry where it made high-end boutique cool stuff but didn't take itself too seriously. Because all the other guys were like, I'm so great, I'm so great, chest beating. You know, we're the best over and over again. And then the Iris guys were just like poking fun at everything. And so yeah. I always thought that was a, a healthier approach, you know. Sure. And it was, it was entertaining. So um, I didn't have a company. And I called Scott and I'm like, I haven't heard about ibis for the recently what's going on you know and i thought if it was going maybe i could partner with him or if it wasn't going i could get it going again and he told me the story of what happened with ibis which was um it's like heartbreaking Uh, he had the company for 20 years and he uh, was like okay i'm going to do something else he sold it to a manager and a uh, an investor and they did some shifty stuff and they owed him money for the company and they they outsourced the uh, construction of the frames and the vendor wasn't able to come through on it and they never paid Scott. So they ran it out of business as about as quick as you could run something out of business and they defaulted on the debt and um, through a mechanism that was shifty, So it was just really weird. And so he told me the story, I'm like, Holy shit, dude! That's horrible. And uh, I literally said, "That's not the way the Ibis movie should end." Like, we need to, you know, and like just tr- trying to paint pictures for him of a, a better future for, and you know, like. A <laughs> but but carbon was, full suspension. Yo, break. it's good. It's gonna be awesome. I don't know exactly what it is yet, but it's gonna be good. And uh, he's like, "Oh man, I'm just burnt on this." I was this. pretty burnt, you know. Yeah, when, just, when this whole thing went down. Sure, it's yeah. not good. Yeah. Yeah, he got... Uh, drug over the coals on this one, you know, so uh so then i I was like in the persuader mode to call him up again, like, so what do you think you know let's do this and, and then eventually he said, uh, yes, and um i and he told me who had the trademarks, which is these attorneys ended up with the trademarks, and they weren't doing anything with them, and i don't know if they would have really gotten out of their own way too much with it they They knew it was kind of neat, but um So I made a deal with them and um, agreed to buy the trademarks. And then uh, classic, uh, I'm like, all right, so let's get that contract signed and I'll send you the money and I'll give you the trademarks. And uh, they're like, well, we've decided to double the price. And I was just like, oh, really? And so I was, you know, I had gotten this money uh, from Santa Cruz, but I didn't really want to spend that money. I wanted to kind of set it aside like, okay, did that and then it's over here now and uh don't use it too much to get this new thing going so i basically funded ibis and everything off of savings that wasn't from santa cruz either and so it's kind of like if you keep things lean and you turn it more and more you you don't set up bad habits like oh we're gonna buy all new beautiful office furniture because we want to make this great impression we're like no we're at the used Place getting the, <laughs> the hand me downs, you know, and, and so the, that the couch on the curb looked nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it hasn't rained yet. Literally, literally <laughs> I, I started our network with used stuff from Grey Bears, which is a recycling place. So, and we still have the switch that I bought there that cost $30. I and I bought like, I think I bought um, at one point, I had 10 computers that I had like $1,000 into all 10. Like, and I bought QuickBooks off of eBay used for $79, <laughs> so like, we made, but it works as good as anything, yeah. you know, it works killer, and we're, we're our customers don't care if we have yeah. a shiny new uh, server, or if it's one that we, you know, finesse together, so um, all that stuff is, is pretty good now, but back then, like, you're basically doing it on a shoestring, and then putting the money where the important stuff was, which was the design and making a really nice bike, you know? So we did we did that, and um, uh, so getting Scott back involved, I felt was important, because he's like the DNA of the company. He's sort of like, you know, all the stuff that the original Ibis uh, was as part of, uh, it's an offshoot of Scott's personality. And um, myself, I'm more of a behind-the-scenes guy. I wasn't gonna be the figurehead dude out doing the marketing, and everything um i'm more like go uh subterranean and just work on um stuff like computers and the, the engineering help the engineers and um i help marketing too but i'm i'm too shy to be to do what scott does you know you look
0: at bontrager <clears throat> or or santa cruz and you, you didn't hear about Hans. right so no, i heard I, heard about it I didn't yeah.
1: until you know, cerise was yeah. telling us yeah, you know, yeah, some of your backstory and and even mentioned yeah. if you want to talk about like Derby rims and oh, yeah. how you guys got to where you have the Ibis wheels now because you yeah. helped get Derby rims.
3: Yeah, and um, you know he was he was telling me uh, at the at Sea Otter like I don't know it's a long time ago now probably like six or eight seven years ago he come uh, Derby comes up to me and he goes uh, you know I want to make wide carbon rims and I look at him I go me too I've been thinking about this for a long time and I, and then. He had he had started a business once that went out of business and he lost his investment, so he was super gun shy. And at this point, we had some cash flow, and I was like, "Dude, I will pay for the molds. Do it." And he he did it, and so then we got those rims. At, his rims were lar- were like our uh, samples and R and D, you know, stuff. And we went from there. We used a different factory and everything. Um, We went to his factory and checked it out, and we told him, yeah, those guys, you know, yeah, for him. We we flew over there and everything, and uh, we're like, they make pretty good rims, but they might copy you, you know, and uh, so that has come to pass, but uh, he's a good guy, and he's made a business out of it, and uh, he seems stoked, you know, so,
0: but... um, he finally quit his day job. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, he really did. He was one of
1: the, the first. He's the first one I can really think of that made a big push on, like, super wide. I mean, his yeah. reins were yeah. really wide. Yeah. For the time. Now it's almost normal. No, it's, but, it's so.
3: normal now. Yeah. And uh, so I, I did a bunch of uh, study where I was like, okay, well, it, it actually, in retrospect, is pretty simple. Like, for years, we had all been riding and going, mm-hmm. man, this is harsh and you let some air out of your tire, and you're like, oh, that's better. And in the first corner you go around, the tire rolls over. And you're just like, shit, I have to put more air back in to keep the tire stable. And that's obviously a consequence of the narrow rim and a big tire, right? It just kind of rolls around. And sometimes it would let the air out when it, when it would happen when you're running tubeless. And so, like, it's an obvious problem, and especially, I think, bigger guys, like they put, you know, put some load into the rear tire and it just kind of wants to flop over. So I I we
0: thank th- Keith Bontrager for that. <laughs> yeah, back, <laughs> back to back Keith. To full circuit, full <laughs> circuit. Yeah, because he, was, he like,
3: started with road rims and rolled them down, and they were, right. they were quite narrow. And so it, it kind of worked if you have 1.9 rear and a 2.1 front, and you had them at 30 psi, it was fine. And you could haul ass on it and, and hang on. Yeah. But uh, then, you know, we keep like, wondering well, what if you could run 20 psi? awesome or 18 you know and so um yeah we went down that road and uh i looked at motorcycle rims and i measured the width of the tire relative to the rim and it's a ratio you know and so you get this ratio in your mind you look at cars and motorcycles tractors road bikes the ratio it's like you know 1.3 or 4 to one you know the the ratio typically it's in this range it might go up to like 1.5 or 6 or something and then you go look at your your mountain bike and it's like three to one (laughs) or two to one two and a half to one you're like why and and i asked a ton of people and no one gave me a coherent answer (laughs) and i'm like okay everybody's full of shit this is wrong and it needs to be Changed and so that was on my mind when Derby walked up and I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And, awesome. um, and so it we, took a while for tires
1: to catch up things. So I yeah, remember I the first time I rode yours, yeah. I forget what size. Yeah. I mean, it may have been like a two three or two four, but it was not designed around that. Right. And it literally, when you put those tires from the day onto your rims, they became a square. Yeah, because yeah. it was yeah. pushing the sidewalls to where the they were a little edge. straight up. Yeah, you'd come to the edge and yeah. then it would be like poof. Yeah slide out but yeah. yeah
3: so we we were sending our rims to maxis and they were testing and, we're, and then they made the wide track to work with the wider rims and all of that at that moment for them was speculative and for us it was speculative but the proof is in the writing right and being able like so many people once they take a lap out there uh, at 16 or 18 or even 20 psi 22 even is way better than 27 and and, uh, the racers of course you know get into it like our EWS guys who are pushing the bikes so hard it's incredible like way way harder than a civilian would ever do right they're running those kind of pressures too they're in the low 20s you know and uh, it just makes it possible some of the stuff they're doing So, uh, so really happy with the way that that whole project went and then with Ibis, uh, the freeform uh, carbon frame uh, seemed to sort of uh, be a tipping point for like uh, Specialized really got into it, uh, Santa Cruz eventually got into it, and everybody now is making um, freeform uh, monocoque carbon bikes, and so
1: you guys still have a very unique aesthetic though especially for like the mojos and the the ripleys and stuff yeah it's roxy <laughs> it's uh yeah it's really special and so what's you know with the new ripley you guys kind of made a big change in that you went away from the eccentric yeah. lower pivot system that you had developed and that was sort of the signature piece of that model and now you're in a more traditional pivot system what's you know, without giving away secrets, like, what's coming up? What do you see next? How are, how are you going to evolve as a company? And I'm, I'm asking kind of like... We're out of ideas, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope people yeah. buy a lot of this bike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's not going to change ever. Yeah. This is just
3: what we're going to make now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The mic. <laughs> it, it is we're funny <laughs> because just, sometimes you're just like... Uh, it's, uh, it's a concept called the adjacent possible. So you're like, you don't know what could possibly be next until you do your, one, your your next step, and then you look at all these other possibilities from that perspective, which right. you didn't have before. And so, like, we don't know, you know? Uh, we, we have some things we're working on, of course, but what, what the Ripmo and the Ripley are is for us, like, latest, greatest, everything that we could possibly pour into this, we, we have. And so it's basically, like, it's nearly maintenance-free. Uh, now and uh, it um, handles incredibly well it climbs so well Yeah, it's very satisfying uh, climbing and then uh, it's like a get out of jail free card on the descent for a lot of uh, people f- from whatever bike they're coming from when you ride it you're like oh my god you know it really opens up things on the descents uh, the combination it's like a, a whole system of you know if you're running the uh, little bigger tires with a little bit lower pressure and then you've got the um, steeper seat angle and a a different uh, weight distribution that gets a little more weight on the front tire, so that it grips better and goes around corners better, like before it slides out. Um, which which was a problem recently because the stems got really short, and then people didn't have as much weight on the front unless they stand up and get over the front. And a lot which is of, a little scary to do sometimes. Yeah, you know? well, it's a different style of riding, and um, the old school guys don't have that wired into them and the new guys, they're good at it. And so they're like, what are you talking about? My bike corner is fine. And then somebody like me who's like ridden uh, the old bikes for whatever, how many years now, I get on it and I crash on the first corner. It's like, yeah. what happened? The front end just washed out, you know? And I'm like, how did, how did you go around the corner like that? You know? <laughs> right. So um, the steeper seat angle helps the climbing and it improves the handling and uh, it, you know, the, the reach has gotten longer and longer to, to give you a good position with the short stems. And so now it's all working really well. Like, I think that it's sort of like dominoes. You know, the short stem made, made people go wider bars, and the, then the top tubes got longer because people wanted to have the right amount of reach. And then, uh, you know, the front ends were washing out, now the st- steeper seat angle it's all working together really well so it's like
1: wider rims and then you need wider tires and then yeah Yeah. make everything work together i think that's yeah that's my sense is you know road bikes had so long to figure that out and mountain bikes have evolved so quickly and that's the complaint is when a new standard you know when boost comes oh well they just want to make us buy new wheels and then super boost and everything else but it's like i think we're just still figuring it out like sure i like that term adjacent possibility because it is it's like you know, every time a new fork from RockShox or Fox comes out, it's so good. And you're yeah. like, man, how could they make this better? And yeah. make sure it's better. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. I, but they learn, you know, it's like you know, well, what one it's of standing the things, on the shoulders of giants, right? Well, just, it came
3: from road bikes, really. Because one of the things that happened is, you know, the, the, the mountain frame uh, geometries and the road frame geometries are pretty similar in a way. Like the concept. But when you have a full suspension bike, you have a rear weight bias. And if you're climbing, you have a really big rear weight bias. So your sag in in the front and the sag in the rear is really different, especially if you're climbing. So the, that seat angle gets slacker and slacker if you're climbing a hill. And you see, at some point, like if you like to run your bike plush and you start with like 30% sag and you have a, a pretty supple bike, you're climbing and who knows what your seat angle is. It's probably like mid-60s or something. Yeah. It's really slack. Yeah. And so it's not an efficient pedaling position. And you can feel it. It's like kind of lame. And so then you get lockouts and, and stuff, and you're trying to stand up and use your muscles uh, differently because you're, you're not over the pedals. And so the steeper seat angle, um, we've been mimicking that for years, but it was not regarded as cool until recently. So like, if you run uh, a zero offset post and you run your seat forward people look at you and your bike looks funny and they're like huh what's wrong with your bike you know and like well, i like the way that feels and they're like "Huh, okay whatever (laughs) and now it's built in because the dropper posts mostly have zero offset and we've made this the seat angle steeper and so everybody's like wow that feels like magic i can climb so great and my bike handles well and you're just like Yep. <laughs> Finally, it's cool and it's okay to do it. Uh, but we, you know, it's we've been doing it in the shadows for uh, uh, I don't know I've at least ten years. Right. Yeah. So what's <clears throat> I may mean,
1: maybe you're not give away secrets for Ibis, but like I feel like you guys are one of those cool brands that has stayed very small and boutique. I don't know what your sales are if you want to share those kinds of numbers. But then you have. Um, and I hate to bring up Santa Cruz, it feels like there's a little sour grapes there, but you know Santa Cruz is one of those brands that everybody thinks of as cult, cool and small, yeah. but they're a massive company. Like yeah. I don't think people realize how big Santa Cruz right, is. Right. It's,
3: it's part of now. Do you, do you yeah. Got, well, yeah,
1: <laughs> and they got bought by a yeah. huge investment firm. Um, but from a growth standpoint, like how big do you want to get, or do you like the
3: size that you are now? I, I really like what we're doing right now, and I, um, I try to emphasize um, the... Elements of the business that we enjoy, and the things we like about Ibis ahead of pure uh, numerical growth, and so um, we're going to err on the side of doing something nice rather than like trying to um, uh, chase Santa Cruz and you know compete with them. They're they're about five times bigger than us, and um, they've done a great job. They've like basically taken over. Um, a huge amount of the floor space on bike shops around the world in a lot of places with really nice high end product that's it 's not only well respected but like it has a very high cool factor and like like uh, uh, other than uh, uh, even Rob now I can uh, say hi to him and stuff is it 's not uh, too bad but like there's times where I basically um, ping those guys and say good job on that last one. You know, I still have a lot of friends there, and and uh, I still feel some pride in their success. But um, we're not trying to do that. I, I don't. Uh, they're they're trying to take down specialized. We have no interest in that. I I like that that I know everybody's name here, and and we're all on good terms, and it's really fun, and we can. Uh, uh, I don't know. We, we don't feel the need to try to get huge. Um, it's it's a goal a lot of businesses have, but um, it's not really my goal. Uh, sometimes it frustrates other people here. We have been growing a lot recently, though, but that's just based on the success of the products. So like, we're not going to hold it back. People love the, the Ripmo, and I think they're really going to like the Ripley. They are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're, we will respond to their wants, but we're not... Going to try to be everywhere all the time. Okay. And then
1: <clears throat> my last question I don't know if Zach has any follow ups. By the way, Zach's sitting in here. He's yeah. been kind of quiet. Um, you guys I'm are sorry. Talking I, the, uh, I talk, you I, I'd rather to... listen to his story. Right? <laughs> uh, well, you and I can talk after this you know, about the bike yeah. and how we felt it rode. But the interesting thing I didn't know is you guys actually, maybe I didn't know you were making the small, the, the prior model, you were making the small size Ripley here in house right. with your own carbon molds and everything. And yeah. you know, while this particular, the new generation four is going to be all made in Asia, you guys are still actively working on carbon development here with the goal of bringing, making some frames here. What's driving that? Is it a cost thing or are you just like a pride thing? Um,
3: <laughs> do you mind if I, Yeah, go no, ahead. Take a pull. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. I haven't been talking too much, but I, this was my project mm-hmm. and uh, um, so In the relationship uh, that IBIS has with its uh, suppliers, we have um, some really skilled guys with a lot of experience um, in carbon layup and design and troubleshooting. And so we are um, often in a position of trying to solve a problem with our uh, vendors. And so like, oh, we're doing this particular layup and it it needs a bunch more material. It's not strong enough. And so it's gonna get heavy. And so one of our guys will fly over there and work through the problem with them and make it light and strong. Because there's a a whole science to that stuff. And there's a big difference in the knowledge level. So um, we have this sort of, uh, um, I felt like to be authoritative and um, you know, uh, respected, we should really know our stuff and be able to do it ourselves. Like <laughs> basically we need to be as good as we think we are. So like, we've uh, uh, had a lot of ideas that it's a little too much for the factories to implement. And so I was like, let's, let's prove these concepts here. And uh, if it works well enough, uh, we think we can make frames here, and it will be, it's still gonna be more expensive, but it'll be close enough that we'll be able to sell them successfully. Right. And so um, it was like four or five years in the making, and I was testing all sorts of different theories, and we'd, we'd do little mock ups of things and all that whenever I had time. And then we got Preston, who uh, used to be the president of Kestrel, and he's an engineer, and uh, he's here now, and he's helping us. And, uh, so what we did is we made a little, um, frame factory within Ibis and we made one size for a little of, frame, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is a little factory. Yeah, yeah, and it, all our ideas went into this and, uh, we didn't even announce it until we were sure we could make them and we pulled it off and it works and they're really nice. They're about, uh, 10% lighter, uh, at the same strength and, um, they require very little finish work because they come out of the mold uh, close to uh, you know, smooth enough. Yeah, not a lot of little holes to fill or anything like that. And uh, so we were able to take uh, a bunch of labor out of it and make it higher performance. And we reduced the energy requirement quite a bit too. So the way they do it overseas, these big steel tools and a heated platen press that's like a 50-ton press, and they run hot oil through the the um, the platens, which are big plates, and they just brute force heat heat the mold up this uh, 200 250-pound steel mold, pouring energy into that thing, and uh, then they take it off and and then they run cool uh, fluid through, and it's just. Uh, energy nightmare, you know? Um, so I wanted to make something that, uh, uh, one or two people could move the tools around and that you could run it, like you could put it in your garage and run it off of a 30 amp circuit. And so, um, we made aluminum tools, we hard coat cleared them, which is hard Anno. So they have a tough surface, but they're aluminum. So they're a lot lighter. It has a really, um, it heats up really fast. Like your frying pans are usually aluminum, maybe they're stainless clad, but aluminum core because aluminum conducts heat really quickly. And um, <clears throat> they have electric heaters in them, cartridge heaters. It's all hooked up to this little computer, so we program the um, temperature over time, and uh, we can experiment with it. And it's very precisely controlled, instead of just pouring heat into this thing and you hope okay, it's hope it's curing the way it's supposed to, right. and. In Asia, they're they're trying to have a quick cycle time, so they tend to run it hotter and shorter amount of time. And th- sometimes we get frames, and you, you look at the frame, and you're like, "Huh, this looks a little funny. It's a little like kind of um, this used to happen about uh, maybe when we first got going. Some of the frames, you like, they kind of overcooked this one. Well done. Yeah, it looks a little funny. <laughs> What's up with this frame? But um, yeah, so we don't do that. It's it's very precise, and and uh, so we were like, well, if we can do this uh, with the small, and we were able to measure how long it takes, and and uh, um, basically check the feasibility of doing this, and so it passed. It passed. We're going to do it, and uh, but now this the the new Ripley came out, and we're not quite ready to make all the the Ripley sizes because it's a pretty high volume too. We have to hire a whole bunch of people big building and, and uh, go for it and it would be really late because it's gonna take us you know, a long time. And so we're like, okay, we'll do all sizes of the new uh, Ripley um, in Vietnam. And we have a great factory in Vietnam. They're the best one we've ever worked with. And uh, the next model um, that we wanna do that's gonna be a light, um, fast kind of bike where we can really um, get some mileage out of our skills, basically. Uh, we'll do it here. So we've got this gnarly project going on where we're putting in the equipment and getting everything set to do all the sizes of a new model, which will be in the future. Wow! Yeah. So I feel like
1: there is a hole in your portfolio for a hundred mil travel
0: ultralight cross country <laughs> race bikes.
3: <so> <laughs>
1: we've been getting
0: asked about that one a lot lately. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've heard the name Chuck Ibis thrown around a few times and is that, that's your nickname, Scott, right? Or is that an alter ego or what, what's the story behind Chuck Ibis? A little bit of both. Yeah. So the, the way that came about, um, was we were driving down to, I think, Long Beach Trade Show back in the eighties, like 85, 86, something like that a long, long time ago. And, um, we, we passed through uh, Santa Barbara on our way down and uh, stopped in at our dealer there, Hazard Cycle Sport, and we uh, we brought the bikes in that we were gonna show off at the, at the trade show. And there was, um, you know, we were showing them to the dealer, giving them a little sneak preview, which of course people love. So there was a guy there who, uh, his name was Pine, I remember, and um, he, uh, he was like, had tie-dye on, you know, and white boy dreadlocks and everything. <laughs> and, um, and this was in the, or he was an early adopter of that look, you know, in um, the, well, tie-dye was around, but um, yeah. But anyway, he, um, we, we, we spent about an hour there, and um, I introduced myself at the beginning of the hour as Scott from Ibis, or Scott Nickel from Ibis, you know, and somehow at the end, you know, Pine was like all freaking out about the bikes, he was just a customer not a he wasn't an owner or a, an employer or anything like that but um at the end we were leaving and he was all excited you know because we've been talking about bikes for the hour and he goes well chuck igas it was nice to meet you, you know? And it's just like well, where did that come from and like all the all the other people who worked in the company were there and they kind of were snickering a little bit and so we go to the trade show and um and people say well hey is scott scott around you know and they go, no, but Chuck is. <laughs> 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 did, you, did you get your name back Yeah. <laughs> Eventually we did. That came later. And uh, so then, then it became like the secret handshake. You know, if you called in, I was like, well, you know, hey, can I talk to Scott? So I was like, well, who's calling, you know? Because, you know, everybody wanted to talk. And, and so, we, you know, there's other people who could do that. So... Um, so if you but you found, you asked for Chuck, you got through immediately because you were right. obviously in the know. Well, so we just sort of you know adopted this thing where we made up these BS stories about how well Gary Fisher might have invented the mount, mountain bike, but Chuck Ibis invented the mountains. And that's you know, <laughs> harkening back to like Hans's talk about us not being yeah. too serious, you know. And so we just kind of ran with it, you know. And we well, created now, this alter ego. And know? now if you
3: if you email Ibis and you. We have a uh, like an information request line. that's called Ask Chuck. Yeah, at Ibis. Well, and your newsletter yeah. comes from Chuck.
1: Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so if yeah, you
3: yeah. do that, um, Scott lately has been answering the majority of those. So you really are talking to Chuck. Yeah. But Chuck is is. Uh, All of us, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's many people. So, (laughs) like, Chuck, sometimes I'll answer the Ask Chucks, or or the president, uh, Tom, will answer them, or another one of the guys here, Todd. So, it shifts around a little bit. But, But mostly, it's Scott, is Chuck. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, that, yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not a very exciting story, but man, it just, it. Chuck stuck you know it was like like one of those things like you you have to almost pretend like you know when you hear somebody talking about it like
2: oh yeah yeah I know
0: Chuck yeah yeah
3: (laughs) exactly there are people often who come up and sincerely ask if Chuck is there yeah and so they don't they're not in on the joke yeah right (laughs) (laughs) it's still fun yeah but it really I mean it's
0: been you know my wife never calls me Scott she calls me Chuck (laughs)
3: This is getting out of hand. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Well, that's Chucky. Usually. Chucky. Yeah. But, Chucky yeah. Man.
1: yeah, that's funny. So, <laughs> speaking of some fun names, you guys have done some creative things with not just the frames, you know, like Kakalugi for yeah. your yeah. Yeah. cross bike. Is, is but... the World
2: 2 PC for the hand job anymore? Yeah. A little yes. bit. A little bit. That's definitive.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. for people who don't know, what is the hand job?
2: <laughs> oh, oh, man. So. <laughs>
3: but you can't ask that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So back in the uh, mid '90s, we had we had these brakes called cantilevers. So <laughs> this be That's, that's the joke. Ago. Kids these days not you know what a cantilever right? is. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so at one point, um, we were um, you know we're building these bikes, and you have to build a little hanger for the cantilever for the for the cable to stop. And uh, I was looking at it one day, and I and I thought, man, the, you know, like, that little cable stop looks. It's, you know, you can make that in the shape of a hand. And we knew a really talented jeweler, so we had to made make the cable stop in the shape of a hand, you know, and then of course, because boys would be boys in this job, and you know, it's like, oh, look at that, look at that hand job, you know, and so we came up with a bunch of different funny names over the years. There was, there was one point where Bicycling did a, did a story about the top, you know, the funnest 25 names in the bike industry. And I think we had like nine of them or something like that. And we're, <laughs> you know, we're a tiny company. <laughs> you know. well, what were they? You can't leave us. Oh, uh, we had, we had, um, Cousin it. We, yeah, we had, <laughs> we had the Uncle Fester and the Cousin It tandems, you know, we had kind of a little Adam's family thing going for a minute there, just for fun, you know, um, we had the, the, the hot unit was this, this, uh, thermos that we had and the wet unit was our, was our water bottle. Of course, the Hakalugi's was like, yeah, yeah, so yeah, then we did one. this. Uh, we did this thing where you know uh, Richie had his uh, logic tubing, the <laughs> had their genius tubing, and so of course, being who we are, we had to have more on. Be- you know, and the and with steel butted tubing, there's more on the ends. You know, so it made sense. Perfect, perfect <laughs> <laughs> So just stuff like that, you know. Mm-hmm. That was a number of them that were certainly in there. Yeah, Spanky, yeah, we had, yeah. The tranny, which, yeah. Yeah, it's another, yeah, another one that's, that's may rest in in peace. Yeah. Yes. Well,
1: on that note. Yeah. Maybe we shower at this (laughs) up. All right, guys, thank you. Yeah, thank thank you so much.
2: So, I loved everything about that interview. That was an hour long, but it was really Actually, I, I wanted to listen to it. I don't listen to these podcasts. I don't know if you know <laughs> that or not. But uh, that one, I... You've just I been faking it this whole time. Yeah. Hey, Watts, listen to this before we record. Yeah. Sure, Tyler. <laughs> exactly. No, afterward, I guess I don't listen to it. But I would listen to this one again. Um, so I got, I grew up mountain biking because I had an older brother who got me into it at an early age. He got me into Adam and the Ants, and he got me into mountain biking. And then he eventually got out of mountain biking, and I stayed in love with both of those things. So... And it was during that whole period of just early ibis ripleys and uh, my brother still actually rides an ibis ripley soft tail 26 inch v-brake bike wow. that's impressive that it's still running uh, it's sort of running that's an old bike it's sort of running
1: yeah well and there was a little bit of story behind that i think with the guys and it, we don't know if it was sort of a glaring omission or just an accidental omission from the but,
2: the story but there john was? castellano was a, a a big part of Ibis, I think, and during that time period. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the story is there. Okay, if, but if I know it's, he's still around doing stuff. You can still actually get that old Ripley frame through a like Castellano Designs website or something like that. Yeah. Still twenty six
1: inch. Yeah, <laughs> man, that's something
2: else. Um, yeah, it's funny,
1: you know, hearing Hans talk about how he was behind the scenes. You know, Scott Nickel too. He's such a low key guy. Half the time, I don't think people realize that he's the one
2: at the demo oh, tent yeah, for sure. when Ibis is set up. We have customers who bought Ibis through us who met him and had no idea that he was the actual owner because he's just some rando helping set up their demo bike. Probably thought he was Chuck or something. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, exactly. Chuck Ibis.
1: Yeah. So what I found the most fascinating about this was the fact that Hans was behind a lot of standards. And it's funny to hear him talk about the progression of... Things And the the example that really, to me, stands out the most and is most obvious, especially today, is, you know, they wanted a wide carbon rim. So they found a way to get it done. And once they had what they wanted, it made them realize, well, okay, now we need different tires. Because they're all squared up. Yeah, yeah. they just like I rode the early Ibis ones before there were tires for that. And really, honestly, like I think I said in the interview, they rode like crap because not because the wheels were bad, it's just it made the tires so poorly shaped. And so, you know, then they got Maxis to do the wide trail tires for them. And then I think what we've seen over the last couple of years, this progression is, well, how are we going to get these big 2.6, 2.8, 3.0 tires in? We need more more tire clearance at the chain stays. Well, how do you get that? All of a sudden, well, it'll boost, right? So it's like, it's this iterative process, you know, everything builds on the next. And it's, I think we get a lot of comments sometimes every time there's some new standard or something big introduced the commenters love to say, "Oh, it's just the bike company just coming up with something new. They're just changing stuff so they can sell more bikes." But it, you know, when you look at it from this perspective of like, "Man, we just want this thing. And it's gonna be better." But oh man, well, in order to do that, we have to do this, and then we have to do this. It you know, it sheds a new light on it, and I I like that because they're not afraid, and so many of the brands aren't. They're not afraid to push forward, even though they're not. You know, they're gonna get that little backlash. But now, do you have anybody buying non-boost wheels for a mountain bike?
2: Yeah, for their. Uh... <laughs> Ibis, Ripley's... Um, first from, gen? Yeah, first gen. Yeah. Exactly. V-brake. Um, somebody did actually come in the other day and they wanted to order some rims uh, for a touring bike and they needed machine sidewall. And it was... I couldn't find them, man. Huh. For this particular rim. Because huh. everything's disc brakes now. So yep. finding a yeah caliper brake rim for this touring bike was hard.
1: That's something else, yeah. So what else? I, you know, you're a big mountain bike history buff. You've got some pretty cool old parts sitting around your shop. What part of that whole
2: interview was the biggest surprise for you? I don't know if it was a surprise necessarily. I was just reveling in the whole story and imagining Scott Nickel faking his way into this (laughs) ride. (laughs) It's just like funny. And then just becoming part of all that. Yeah, that's. Yeah, what a a
1: lucky uh, coincidence. It's sort of like, you know, the adage I've heard, if you want to kind of try new things and get ahead and meet new people and everything, you, just, you don't say no, right? Because if you had said no, oh, I don't have a car, sorry, no. Would we even have IVIS today? Would we have a lot of these other things today if it weren't for that? I think it's encouraging to hear people just say yes and just
2: go for it sometimes with yeah. who knows what will happen. But I just, I mean, and I, so I just keep thinking about how nowadays there's just not a ton happening. There's no story like that that I can think of. What would we be on the ground floor of? Like what would I say yes to that would be that same risk that would propel me into this world of something as cool as mountain biking. What what would that be? I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. Now self-driving it's, cars. Uh, yawn. <laughs> e-bikes. Yawn. <laughs> just that's what I mean. Like that. Yeah, that changed everything.
1: That's cool stuff. That's that's sort of a big thing to think about. So maybe we should just leave it on that. What would the next thing be? noodle on that friends until next time
2: that's a wrap
0: on this episode tune in next time for another great ride be sure to follow at BikeRumor on your favorite social media and hit like and subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast player thanks and we will see you next time